It's happening again. Welcome to Work Cookie, a CBOC podcast. As we broadcast around the world, get bite-sized morsels and tidbits from our industrial organizational psychologists, other experts, and the latest research on the workplace to boost your organization's effectiveness. Sign up now at CBOC.com. That's S-E-B-O-C.com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from our experts at CBOC.com. Welcome. I'm Dr. Jeremy Lookaball, Industrial Organizational Psychology Consultant and Workplace Communication and Negotiation Coach. If you are in or getting into the industrial organizational psychology field and you feel a little lost in the crowd, you're looking for support to jumpstart your career, blaze your IO path, and maybe get the answers that your degree program never gave you about what it's actually like to work as an IO psych practitioner, check out CBOC's IO Career Pathfinder membership at cboc.com. If you're a more established IO practitioner, check out our expert membership to showcase your expertise, build your brand, and be part of our initiatives. Do you lead a university's IO or applied IO psychology program? Go to cboc.com, get in touch to partner with us to build your program's brand and get solid real world support for your students. Let us do the heavy lifting for their engagement and experiences. And businesses, get in touch. We've got the bank of experts you need for coaching, consultation, and program development and execution. Please subscribe to the podcast because it helps us out and it helps the field of IO. Also, today, we have Tom Bradshaw with us, a voice and speech coach and a damn good actor too. He is the official voice and speech coach for the industrial organizational psychology community. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Work Cookie, our weekly gathering of IOs, HRs, recruiters, and one actor, as we try to make the world of work just a little bit better. Uh, Jeremy, here we are, and um, we're talking about space today, and I think we may even talk about Little Green Men. Yes, we, we're going we're to get, in, get into all of it. I mentioned this before uh, at the end of, I think, last week's podcast. It's such an interesting and exciting new new area. And if anyone wants to watch me fumble and stumble through learning a, a new field of study on the fly with Josh Duran, who's here today, uh, listen to some of the some of the podcasts that we've done. We're actually it's on IO uh, Space and IO. Uh, we've done four already, and we're actually we're, we were setting up uh, tomorrow. Actually, we're going to do another couple. Uh, but it's it's wildly interesting. And I was also thinking. Normally, I try to I try to look at the space psychology stuff and I try to tie it into workplace here on Earth. The other day, I was thinking maybe I shouldn't do that. Just let it go. Let it be just IO psychology and space because it's interesting just on its face. So I'll try to uh, lighten up on me always comparing it to here, but I couldn't help but go through some of the PDFs to, today <clears throat> and I'm highlighting them, some of the articles, which I'll post in the, in the chat. And I just put... There's a lot of comments. Is this happening here? Because a lot of these things are happening here. So it is completely relevant. Tom, what would you say if we were, if we had someone that agreed to join us today and here is here in the audience, camera off, that has actually been to space? Like really, really been to space? Yes. <laughs> that would be amazing. That's it happening. would be amazing. Yeah. Um, since we, is, since is we don't have something? that, oh. <laughs> we're going to rely on studies and people who have have uh studied people who have gone to space uh to start out uh I, i'm gonna put some of these references in the chat in just a second but we look at there's a lot of um 
a, a lot of it, we're looking at these ice environment, these isolated, confined and extreme environments because of obviously the trips to Mars, the trips to uh, create a lunar base station. Um, one thing that I'll start off and then I'll pass it over to you. One thing that I found was interesting. One of the articles that we're looking at today was from 2014 and they said, hey, it'll be 20, 2050 or the 2050s until we launch our first mission to Mars. Four years later, this other article by Lauren Landon, now we've moved up 20 years already and it's expected to have the first uh, mission to be in the 2030s. So not far away, but it's interesting just to see how things speed up with the private companies that are doing it. But they're also, of course, working with, with the government agencies and the just superb increases in technology. I'll pull it over to you, Tom. And, and there's once again competition between countries, you know, about who's going to be there first. So we, you know, we're both collaborating, but, <laughs> but not everybody's on the same team. Uh, so it's you know, we're not only going to eventually get there, but, you know, and I can't imagine what it's like to be stuck in a tin can for six months uh, to a year with, you know, four other people. And I don't think you can shower, uh, <laughs> but then, you know, it's too bad Gene Rottenberry wasn't with us today. And we could talk about, you know, 300 years in the future when we're all on starships and what's that going to be like when you know you're taking your business but now it's in space and you don't see anybody you know your family for six months to what you know star trek it was a five-year mission so you know but <laughs> maybe we should stay a bit more grounded and, and start with what exactly would an io do on the international space station so there's so much to get into here just to cover some of the things you mentioned so mars is uh 200 million miles away and when you look at just like even thinking about the families they're looking at um creating ver like these virtual families for people because they are they're teams of four to six usually depending on the longevity of the mission and when you look at it's oh there's so much to get into today so i'm gonna give a, another little teaser and one of the missions back in the uh back in the 80s i'll get into the specifics of this once i take another look at it but everything that would mimic a mission to Mars accidentally happened. So uh, I'm going to pull it. Uh, so, Tom, I'm going to say back to you and I'm going to pull up some of the uh, the articles. By the way, they are um, the, the articles are posted in the chat. Lee brings up a, a, a interesting thing, too, because when psychologists are studying these ice environments, there are plenty that already exist. You look at sailors on submarines, you look at um, researchers out in Antarctica, and even they've created uh, these test environments for these teams before they go to Mars in Antarctica and also on the side of a volcano somewhere. So in terms of preparation and, select and selection, it used to be back in the 60s, who has the right stuff? You know who who has the tenacity to go up to space right now it's so much more that that is looking into because it's really that team aspect and making sure that everything you do has is, is you're taking into consideration the well-being of the entire team um i'll turn it back over to you because there's so many great specifics that uh that we'll be able to share here as i pull these up well yeah because i'm i'm thinking that you know, it's it's great that we actually have some research already that you know we can go. Well, it's sort of like the submarine, or you know, I think the 
the tests that are doing. I think it is in Hawaii on the volcanoes. You know, you have to go into the building and you don't get to come out for a year, I think it is. So, you know, we do have some little experience at this. So what has that shown so far? I mean, is it even a good idea to go to space? So <laughs> the speaking of that 10 can that, that you mentioned earlier, um, in the article, Extreme Teams, who has the right mental stuff for a years long mission by Bruce Bauer. There's some, some interesting photos in there that actually show one of the 10 cans. And um, uh, I'll just go into, let me look at this real quick. Yeah, All right. Well, so this, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I was just saying, you know, I can't even spend the entire day in my house. Like I got to get outside, you know? So I, I don't think I can go to space right now. It's I'll tell you, there's the looking at the the feedback from astronauts who have gone to, to space, mo, a lot of them come back and say, hey, this is actually a good thing. It was a good thing for me. They have a greater appreciation of how beautiful Earth is. They actually have um, a better understanding of, of life in general. It doesn't uh, and actually here astronauts. And I'm reading from this. Astronauts have decided how their lives have changed for the better as a result of their otherworldly journeys. So it went for U.S. astronaut Jerry Leninger, even after enduring an onboard fire, a near collision with a resupply rocket, and several system failures during four months uh, on Mir in 1997. He described returning home with this increased self-confidence, greater appreciation of life's pleasures, and a newfound sense of Earth and its human inhabitants. But, of course, it doesn't always go the same. The article continues here. Uh, when Buzz Aldrin returned from uh, from the 1969 mission, he sank into depression, developed alcoholism, and got divorced right after that mission. So there are so many unknowns and so many different types of variables, and that's why the you know potential astronauts will spend so so much time uh, in terms of in these different environments, team training. And one of the main things is self is self care. And the longer the mission, the more that self care rises to the actual top of what's most important. Um, what's that make you think of, Tom? Well, it's interesting because you know, as an as an actor, I've done some workshops where you know you get into heavy emotional work, um, and our instructors would say things to us like, you know, you've just gone through this process, so don't make any life altering decisions. <laughs> for like the next three or six months until you've actually been able to incorporate what you've gone through. Um, and I imagine it must be the same thing if you go into space. Like, are are they getting any of that type of advice, like life skills about when you come back and what you have to deal with? Because this is a life-altering, at least now. I mean, I'm sure one day it'll become very common. But right now, it's a life-altering experience. Um, and, I, you know, it's going to change you when you go to space and come back. So how do I deal with just that? That's a whole in another interesting topic. And I know I was going to point to Lee and he's got his hands up. So I'm going to pull it to him because <laughs> I, I think we're going to have similar ideas here, Lee. Yeah. So, you know, obviously we don't have a whole lot of experience with this because, you know, directly, because, you know, we, so few people have, have been in space thus far. Um, but we have done research. And a lot of this is, is, is more on the you know the the the, the other side of psychology, with uh, you know resilience and, and that sort of thing. And you know 
but you can really, you know, we've, we've taken people who've dealt with isolation. Like we, you know, they've done experiments where somebody, you know, is put by themselves and they just record them slowly losing their minds and that sort of thing. And there are certain people who will deal with this better than others. You know, those who uh, are very collaborative and work in teams and that sort of thing. Um, but we've got programs already because of, you know, all the, you know, 20 years of war. You get people who are gone for, you know, nine, nine, 12, 18 months. Uh, you don't come home the same. And your family, your part in your family paused. Your family did not. So your family is a year down the road, but you're a day later. And so we have programs to deal with the resilience, to deal with the reintegration, to deal with all of the psychological and emotional baggage that that comes with on both sides. So we do have a firm uh, basis there for that stuff. And of course, we, we have lots of, you know, experience with people in, you know, subs for, you know, underwater for six months. And they don't even have windows, you know, at least in a space station, you have windows, you know. And uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of stuff we can pull from there. Uh, that, you know, and then of course you have, but there's other things that we, we can't really go for, like the, uh, like physiological effects, you know, the, the lower gravity or lack of gravity affects you, your muscular, you know, skeletal structure. You know, people tend to come home, you know, taller, but weaker. Uh, I read an article recently about a, a, a guy who stayed in a, an underwater house for an extended period of time at a higher uh, atmospheric level, and he came out shorter. The increased pressure and being closer to the source of gravity actually compressed him. So there's some interesting stuff going on out there that we can really draw on here. But you know, th there's this is fascinating in general because I mean, from the from the you know psychotherapy side, there's lots we can work with on uh, you know resilience, uh, cabin fever, you know, all these things. Um, you know, because you're going to be stuck with people for a long time, and there's no neutral corners. There's very, very little room. You can't go sit in your room and think about what you've done. So there are, there, you're going to do a lot of research, uh, a lot of selection into people that can do that. And actually it kind of reminds me of the selection for uh, special operations right. type units. Well, well uh, Jeremy, just hold on a second. Cause I want to ask you this question, you know, especially when you talk about like special ops and stuff, some of those guys get so wired that they feel more themselves when they're on a mission. Oh, without and, a doubt. And, and are we going to see people coming back from space who are like, I, I, I can't be on Earth anymore. I've, I've got to get back into space. And how do without we help those people? Yeah, without a doubt, you will. I mean, absolutely. And then I don't even have to be that deep in it. I mean, uh, I can remember my first deployment. You know, I, I, when I came home, it wasn't like, oh, I got to go back. But it was like, I don't I don't feel like I belong here anymore. Yeah. And, and it took me a good six months to reintegrate into life. Because I had, I mean, I had no point of reference. I mean, it was easier on subsequent deployments, but I had no reference. And it's the same thing here. You've never been to space. you got no reference. And, you know, the type of people that are going to be able to do this are going to be very similar. You know, the ones who, you can't have the individualists in this kind of endeavor. You have to have the team players. You have to have the people who not only refuse to fail, but refuse to let the people on each side of them fail. Mm -hmm. And that's what you're going to do, because, I mean, this is just like being out to sea on a, on a, you know, like a naval ship when something goes horribly wrong and everybody is part of damage control. Everybody is part of firefighting and everybody has got to work together. You may hate the guy. I mean, with a visceral passion, hate the guy next to you, but you are doing everything you can to make sure that guy lives and he's doing the same for you. And that's 
going to be just amplified in a space situation because, I mean, I mean as dangerous as, you know, mishaps at sea, I mean, space, yeah, I mean, there's no lifeboats. <laughs> yes, it very much is. Uh, Jeremy, let's go back to you. Part of that, so a big part of that when you is um, the sleep is the sleep aspect. Mm-hmm. So they sleep, and, and this is like there's some really cool pictures of of inside these capsules here where you you sleep in a you know vertically in a sleeping like strapped into a sleeping bag. But they have done they have done so much so many studies on on just sleep in general, and there are some interesting things that that come out for that uh, that come out with that. So when you look at so just on Earth, and here's where you I've I can't help but tie it back into, you know, the workplaces here on earth, right? On earth, chronic sleep restrict, restriction of, of intense magnitudes causes, causes attention and memory problems. Okay. So we get that. So on space stations, they're actually helping because there's with the lack of, of natural light and any kind of circadian rhythm. So they, they equip workstations with blue lights to suppress levels of the sleep hormone melatonin and raise alertness so they can work that full shift, but it also makes sure that they can get tired enough. So here's the, you know, the general person in me, which is like, Hey guys, if you're staying up late, or if you're looking at your phone two hours before a computer, get a blue light filter, get some blue light blocking glasses, because here they're using blue light to keep people awake. And when we're on our phones, so we get that particular aspect of it. When you look at the sleep deprivation one, so this is uh, on I forget which mission one man became increased because of a lack of sleep. So their average sleep when they're, when they're up there in space is anywhere between five and a half to six and a half hours per night. One man became increasingly, increasingly depressed, physically exhausted and mentally fatigued. And therefore he and another slumber deprived crew member had the bulk of their arguments and conflicts with mission control back on earth and also their other comrades. So we look at these psychological factors and then think about your workplaces here on earth with people who are sleep deprived and how that can lead. When you look at a lack of sleep, that leads to a lack of willpower the next day. And willpower are those things that allow us to, you know, anywhere from sit through a meeting to do deep work, to interact with others. There was another person who, uh, it says another man took frequent naps during the, during the day because he was so sleep deprived rather than arguing or fighting with others. He became increasingly withdrawn from the group and spoke only occasionally. And when he did, it was only with two of his colleagues. So when you look at that type of isolation, you're up there isolated. Then you become isolated, not necessarily of his own fault or accord. It's because of that sleep deprivation. You look at what that does. And when you're looking at the overall good of the group, um, but how does that happen now? How do we look at the the disengagement? I do want to add too, um, we talk about we talk about cultural differences. This this was really interesting that I that I found a difference in how Russians versus Americans dealt uh, were affected by sleep deprivation. Stressed out Russians experience a blend of fatigue and depression. So we have fatigue, depression. When U.S. astronauts get upset and tired, they're more likely to report a mix of anxiety and depression. So fatigue and, and depression versus anxiety, depression. So you look at and I'm sure that they looked farther and there's a deeper study on that uh, in terms of why. But again, it's just interesting how the things that we experience, um, you know, every day, how those are are played out in these particular environments. I, I would be interested to know if NASA has an IO psychologist. Yeah. They, are they, they do. Are they, are they do? 
Yeah. So they have, they have lots of them and um, Lauren Landon. So quick. So side note, here's how this all got started and why we're even on this topic. When we were at uh, PSYOP recently in Boston at the conference in this past April, they had, uh, they, they used one of those conference apps and I was looking on them and they had these, um, these side groups where you could just go and it's like, Hey, we're meeting up here. So Josh Duran, who's here today, created one for space psychology. Hey, is anyone interested in space psychology? Andra's here today. She joined our table and we just had this just interesting conversation about space psychology. So that's how we all met and why we're talking about this today was that shared interest. And we also, many of us went to one of the presentations that, that were put on one by uh, Lauren Landon, who is the author of a lot. She's an IS psychologist and the author of a lot of the preeminent studies that are out there. And in fact, one of the references for today uh, is one of her particular studies. That one's called Team Training is a Go, Team Training for Future Space Flight. And she's got several books. Um, you know, Joshua knows much more, of course, than I do. Um, but yeah, does NASA have IO psychologists? Oh, yes. And they are doing very intense and very, uh, very great work. Yay. <laughs> so, so, Josh, I want to hear from you today. Uh, but first, Nick, let's go to you. Yeah, it's an interesting topic. And I think one of the things that we take, and I think Jeremy's fighting the urge to do, is well, how does it translate? If we're we're being so very careful in the selection and preparation of people who are going to space, how does that translate to organizations now? I mean, how can we apply some of that uh, to it as well? I think when we talk about you know space psychology, there's there's two types of work that are that are happening. There's the prep work to get the technology built, to get the people ready, and to do all of that. And then there's also Okay, what are you going to do on this flight? Are we, you know, doing research? Are we trying to build, you know, working space cities or what, you know, what does it look like when you're actually up and on the rocket and things like that? Um, and it's just it's one of those things of, well, who's in charge? And yes, I, I actually did see a posting for an IO psychology with NASA when I was looking for for work as well. So they, they are certainly out there. Um, and I think that this just heightens the, you know, we always know that the environment you work in is going to have an impact on your your mental health, your physical health. Um, and this is just that on steroids. Um, you know, the environment is so temperamental, so wildly different than anything we have that even when we simulate it, simulate it, it doesn't quite uh get to the the depths and the the breadth of what challenges uh we'll be facing to get to the moon, Mars, and, and beyond from there. Right. Uh, well, well, let me ask you this, Nick, because, you know, it, even though we've been out in space since the 1960s, you know, it really is kind of a fresh start because there's not a lot of us who have been there yet. Uh, but we have an opportunity to create something new. So when we look at something like diversity, equity and inclusion, we're working to that goal right now here on planet Earth. But as we move into space, that could be a starting point. So do we want to try and leave a lot of the issues that we're dealing with today on planet Earth? Or is it just inevitable that, you know, eventually we're going to have someone in space who doesn't like other people and we might have to sit down and have a talk with them? Uh, so can yeah. we avoid things? Can we avoid recreating the same problems we've got going on? I, I tend to think not. I mean, you get enough people in the room and, you know. And try getting five people to agree where to go to lunch. Um, and so it's, 
it's the nature of human interaction is that it is complex and it's going to happen. Can we can we take steps to, you know, it's it's a strange balance because right now we need the people with the right stuff who can handle it mentally and physically. And as space travel goes the route of air travel, even, you know, where it does become more commonplace, then how do we open the doors wide enough that we're not excluding people, that everybody has the chance uh, to do what they need to do. But by nature right now, it's extraordinarily selective um, and therefore remarkably discriminating. Um, and how do we, when we can take the restrictors off of that, how do we make sure that everybody gets a seat at the table who who would want one? Yeah. And, you know, I think space tourism, space tourism had already begun, but I, I think there's already been a problem <laughs> with people getting rowdy, uh, you know, and, and how does this, someone deal with that? Uh, Ryan, let's go to you. Yeah. So one of my interests in uh, long-term space travel is the factors that we can't control in terms of people. So as soon as people move away from home long-term, as we've seen when people migrate anywhere, they start having children. And that's very different than what we're doing right now, which is selecting people who are adults that we can weed out, um, the best people from the worst people and all that, and then put them in situations that we know they have the best chance of excelling at. But as soon as you take them away from Earth long-term and they have kids, you can't control what those kids are going to be. You can't select for them. And yet they're going to be going into the workforce on other planets or on space stations. And so that to me is going to be really interesting because we're going to have to deal with human behavior in an environment that we're not used to in a place where, for example, these kids won't be able to go outside and burn off their energy in the same way that they've done on Earth. Um, so we're going to have to raise what is going to be a very different kind of workforce, but the same kind of human limitations uh, to survive and thrive in other environments. And I have no idea what's going to happen with that. Yeah, you're right. What happens when we get to the day that someone goes, Earth? I've never been to Earth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, um, Joshua, if you don't mind unmuting your mic, are, are, are we are we on track here or, or are we getting way ahead of ourselves? And you know, where exactly are we today? Uh, yeah. <clears throat> Thank you, Tom, for that question. So let me uh, address it back to that um, first initial <clears throat> question um, where you psychology in space. And essentially, we're at the threshold of uh, space travel and exploration, where commercialization is becoming a reality. You know, um, the space industry is estimated to grow into an economy worth more than a trillion dollars uh, by 2040. And it's even said by Neil deGrasse Tyson on an episode of the Joe Rogan Experience that within 50 years, the human space program will fully transition into a space industry supported not by tax dollars, but by tourism. Uh, so how does space exploration translate to the workforce on home? Um, you got to look at it um, in the in terms of extreme teams, um, because there's certain factors that human exploration tails and obviously that being the environment. Um, the workforce constantly has to deal with uncertainty, um, dangerous uh, critical life events. Um, and some of these things are exclusive to ice environments. And so although they can be uh, attributed to, um, I'm sorry, although they can be transitioned to uh, careers that we're familiar with, like firefighters, police force, aren't uh, in the military. Um, they still lack uh, that little specific ingredients um, that makes it uh, an ice environment, and that's you know danger. 
um, not being able to call out for help outside of your immediate uh, teammate. Well, and, and, but today, right now, you know, everybody who goes to space, you know, if if we need somebody to make coffee in the morning, they're sending an engineer. You know, <laughs> these are people who, you know, have at least PhDs, if, you know, not multiple PhDs. What happens when all of a sudden it becomes an industry and someone who just graduated high school, you know, tomorrow they're getting on a rocket and they're going to a space station that's circling the moon. And, you know, they're going to be doing repairs and maintenance and stuff, but they don't have that formal education and and probably, you know, as an 18 year old aren't fully mature yet. So <laughs> how do we deal with with it when we get to that point where it's just common to go to space? Yeah, uh, actually, in my first uh, college paper um, was figuring out how can we implement the the really restrictive assessments that are implemented in NASA for astronaut uh, candidates, how can we relate that to, to the employee workforce? And, you know, as an undergrad, I didn't come to a decisive conclusion, but that's something that I want to tackle in the future um, as we move into a more colonized, uh, colonizing society. Um, what are those competencies that essentially people can um, either train or have inherent abilities that will make them um, excellent employees in space. And ultimately, it's not going to be for everyone, um, but we are still looking at those critical factors that determine success and failure, uh, most of it being uh, cognitive processes. So, yeah, you would need a degree in some form or fashion. Well, Jeremy, I've already decided that the I.O. movie, the reboot, <laughs> will be in space. But then you got to take actors to space, which I don't think is a good idea. Lee, let's go to you. Oh, Tom, you totally have to direct that movie. I'm just saying. <laughs> um, you know, everything that we just said, you know, that was just said, you know, that you want to add, know where IOs fit into the whole space race thing. That's it right there. Because, you know, as crucial as, you know, we've talked about this multiple times over the last couple of years, but as crucial as it is to do. Uh, job task analysis and writing good job descriptions and all of those things that we've talked about, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's important. You know, if you've got somebody who you're hiring to work in an industrial plant, I mean, there's certain things you need. If you're hiring somebody to work in an office, they need different things. But when you're hiring somebody to go to, you know, Tom's before mentioned, you know, moon base, there there's certain things that you can't gloss over. And, but the first thing is a no kidding job <laughs> analysis. What is the, the, you know, what is the no kidding bare minimum stuff that a person needs to be successful in this job? And it's going to be a lot broader than somebody who's going down to work at, a, you know, I don't know, 3M or something. I mean, because you got, um, you know, just kind of like when I was talking about, you know, go, you know going out on a Navy ship, you're going to have to, you're going to have to have. You have to be able to deal with emergencies. You're going to have to be able to, to step outside of your job and, you know, plug the hole that just opened up and is sucking your life-giving air out. You know, there's there's certain things that are no kidding things. And when you're going for, uh, you know, a non-NASA-trained you know NASA -trained astronaut, you know, that screening process is going to have to be robust. I mean, beyond anything that we have seen thus far. And, you know, because let's face it, the guys at NASA, that's self-selecting in many ways. 
But when you open it up to the to the you know John Q public, that's on you. And, and if you're the hiring manager and you're the the HR person and you're the screening person, you're the person administering the assessments, whatever the case may be, to hire little Timmy to go be maintenance on a space station, you better get it right. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it is it is a whole other level we have never seen that you have got to get it right. And that goes down to the brass tacks. We've got to do just an above and beyond job on defining the job, defining the extra things, and then figuring out the screening process to make sure that they have them. And then the next step is onboarding and training, because let's face it, there are many things that no matter what school you go to, you will not have when it comes to going to space. So we're going to have to have, you know, post-employment training. And so we got to have somebody who's going to really lay that out. I mean, what is that? We're going to space camp in Huntsville. I mean, what are we doing? So we got to figure that out and we got to get it right because we don't have any other job that compares that said that has the level of, of danger, you know, life-threatening danger associated for a mishap. I mean, you know, somebody runs over your foot with a forklift, that sucks. Somebody hits the side of a space station with a forklift. Yeah, your day's not going to go well. So, yeah, I mean, this is a place where IOs could really, really make a difference. Well, I, and I think this is already a TV series. If not, I'm, I'm going to have to do it. But, you know, the, the idea of, you know, I think this it's set on Mars in the future. And what happens when you go to Mars to take a job and then you get fired and now I'm stuck on Mars? trying to find another job, you know, that's a little bit different than being stuck on earth. Uh, Nick, let's go to you. To build on what Lee was saying, you know, yes, it is job analysis to make sure you've got the right people in the right places, but it's more than that because people are going to be fulfilling multiple roles. Like there's, there's no room for, for loafing at, at this point, you know, we're not, we're not going to have like the crew and then the passengers just yet. Um, so you not only have to be the engineer maintenance police force, fire force, all in one. So that job analysis is tricky because you do have those compounding elements and we're also doing it for jobs that don't yet exist um, as well. And so it's funny and and listening to Lee, um, you know, I think NASA and everything has created kind of that same militarial kind of buildup to get into space. You have the crew, the, the pecking order and things like that. Does that model work best because it is such a, a life and death situation? Or with privatization, do we get away from some of that uh, military complex? And what are what are the pros and cons of trying to get those those things worked out as far as getting getting the common goal, which is getting to to the moon or Mars or, or wherever taken care of? And, and that's just you know the first goal because eventually we'll get to the point where. You know, as we talk now about work-life balance, how do you do that when, you know, all of a sudden your family is in space with you, you know, <laughs> and we can you know, go back to lost in space, but, you know, how do you strike a work-life balance when you're all, you know, living on planet Mars? Um, Josh, let's go back to you. Uh, yeah, uh, I want to comment on uh, what Nick mentioned as far as should we maintain that uh uh, what is that word? Uh, military background. I'm sorry. I almost said materialistic, uh, but uh, military background. And my only uh, objection with that is because 
we need to really move into where a team is fully uh, autonomous and can really uh, work together. And if you're relying on a hierarchical form of communication that is no longer existent in long distance uh, space, space exploration missions, then ultimately you're, you're building a foundation, a faulty foundation. And that's it. That's all I have to say. Well, let me ask you too, because, you know, right now, you know, International Space Station, there's what, six people on it? You know, about usually what happens when we build a space station or we're building on a planet and all of a sudden there's three or four hundred people. How do you create a team, (laughs) you know, of 400 people without, you know, something going wrong? Yeah, uh, I think uh, these teams are going to form clusters um, and then these clusters are going to organically turn into organizations. Um, I'm not entirely sure that that process entails but ultimately we're all aware that humans are social creatures and gravitate towards each other so uh teams research uh teams will be undoubtedly uh influential in the future so i'm sure amazon one day will be delivering packages in space <laughs> so how, you know how does a company like amazon which you know may be having a few issues uh, with their employees how do they transition to space and not just do the same thing? Uh, so it's going to require um, uh, totally new different uh, competencies because um, we're already looking at what a successful organization looks like where they're no longer focused on on building that organization on on a planet or in space, we're, we're looking at now how do they function successfully. So I think we're missing a key, a couple of steps there. Uh, my focus is how do we get into space and be successful? The question was, what does a successful company look like? Um, if someone wants to take over, I would love to hear that because I can't think of one. <laughs> You'd be a fortune teller and a very wealthy man. Uh, Dr. Jeremy, let's go to you. Tom, you know how much I love to share my screen. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to show a, uh, uh, so this is from the space. It's, it's for the the reference that's in the show notes, the space skills Alliance, I think is, is what it's called. So I, I was looking at this and I found this wildly interesting because it broadened my perspective to, okay, you've got six astronauts in space, but how many thousands of people do you have working on earth just for those six people? So I thought about this. And for those that are listening to the, to the audio podcast, this is for the UK. So the UK is, and by the way, this, there is so much data in this particular article, the UK space sector is growing at a rate of more than 3% per year, creating hundreds of new jobs each year. So what they did, they developed the first ever quantitative assessment of skills demand in the UK space sector. Uh, sector, And when you look at, it says the most sought after technical skill is software development. Okay, that makes total sense. There's also a high demand for transferable skills, including uh, interpersonal and communication skills. And so here we've got this interesting graph where you see the different color coded It's color coded for transferable skills, trait, knowledge, or technical skills and the percentage of jobs. So one of the methods they did, they looked at, I think like maybe 500 different um, job rec- recs that were out there, but you have interpersonal skills because it's so important, whether you're in space or whether you're on the ground working to get to space or helping crews in space, how important that is. And that's right around 85% of the jobs 
And, and then next in line, you've got communication skills with 75% of the jobs. And then going down the line, you've got the design development and deployment of software, followed by analytical skills, English, IT skills, self-motivation, and then a bunch of others. And anyone can pull up this article and see now you're getting into the, like the tens and the twenties. So it's interesting. And it just made me think, wow, what's going to be required. And then of course, because we're talking about here on earth, what other, I mean, we think about, especially when they're, when you've got the crews that are no, that are no longer on earth, when you want to talk about high stakes situations and a lot of companies, there's so many different companies and so many different types of companies and different company industries that are working really uh, vehemently with very, very high stakes situations where what they do could make or break the success of another team or even the health of another team. So when you look at the pressure and the uh, sleeplessness and the anxiety that's on crews on earth to help crews in space, or even when you look at different industries here, it's it's an interesting parallel and something that we you know, obviously we keep in mind, Tom. Well, I'm, I was thrilled to see that, you know, communication skills was number two, because I'm thinking, you know, hey, maybe I will go to space and be a coach. Uh, but then I look at your chart and see that attention to detail is at the very bottom. And now I'm back to, yeah, I don't want to go to space because uh, <laughs> something bad's going to happen. Lee, let's go to you. Oh, man. You know, Joshua said something that really, really kind of resonated it, that something that we have not dealt with before, it, because I mean, this is not just the ISS on to scale. This is something completely different. If we're talking about like a long range mission or whatever else, I mean, you are your own savior at that point. Nobody's coming. And this has got to be, you know, unless it's like an actual no kidding military type mission, but that's not what we're talking about. It's going to be something between your standard business organization and your standard military organization. Because you have to have a level of structure. You've got to have a no kidding who's in charge. There's got to be a captain of the ship. There's got to be a pecking order to some extent. Because, I mean, let's face it. What do we all do if we're left to our own devices? Pretty much what we want. So you've got to have some form of structure. I mean, it can be pretty flat. I mean, and it probably will be. Because everybody's going to be a specialist. Everybody's going to you know, going to have these, these high-level skills. They're all going to be very smart Um but there's going to have to be some kind of a structure. And, you know, and if you're talking hundreds of people, I mean, you're going to break down into teams and then the teams are going to break down, you know, and there's going to be, there's going to be an org chart of some form. And there's got to be an undisputed who's in charge and who's in charge of particular things, because otherwise it's all going to break down. And I mean, you look at your, your mass, I mean, even in your collective societies, you know, you look at you know, an indigenous collective society, there's still a chief in the village. There's still a village council. And, you know, once you get out there and, you, and, you know, I mean, it's going to, things are going to evolve. It's going to be fascinating. I hope I'm still alive when this happens because this is going to be fascinating because there's going to be evolution. You know, is there going to be some form of democracy? Well, we don't like Bob, so we're going to vote in Joe. I mean, you know, I mean, how how is that going to work? And that this is going to be something that we have not seen before. I mean, I, you know, there's probably been some concepts in sci-fi somewhere. I mean, it's amazing how prescient that is. But this is going to be a whole new level of organization. And I'll be fascinated to see what, you know, IOs come up with on this because this is something going to be completely new. I mean, I I really think that this is going to be something that we have not seen before. And there will be many things that somebody went, huh, didn't see that coming. So 
you know, there's going to be a lot of that. It's going to be fascinating. Well, you know, I, I can agree with you that, you know, those future organizations are going to have to sort of be that hybrid blend between traditional organizations, but have that military sort of feel to them. We talk, and you know, you and I talk a bit about how many ex-military people go into the IO field. Uh, so is that a future future niche that organizations should be looking for those former militaries who are now IOs? Yeah, possibly. Possibly. I mean, there is a certain, there is a skill set there that is a little different. Um, you know, and, and you know, and another thing that just occurred to me as well is that this has to be some kind of hybrid because this is not going to be, you know, if I got an employee, there are certain things I can do for motivation and they're going to expect, a, you know, they're going to expect a yearly raise. They're going to expect, you know, potentially a promotion. We well, you know, can't necessarily do that in this situation. I mean, you know, money's got to be a non-issue when you're up there. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe you got a ship store or something, you know, they got five years worth of, you know, soft drinks squirreled away or something. I don't know. But, you know, a lot of your material possessions are going to be a non-issue because it can't be at that point. Um, I mean, maybe you got family back at home that's still getting a paycheck for you and good for you. But up in space, I mean, I'm going to give you a raise (laughs) for what, you know, or, uh, you know, can you be promoted to Mm. what? You know, there's already somebody there. Are they creating new positions? Did somebody get, you know, sucked out an airlock? I mean, what happened? You know, so there's totally things that we think of in a more in a normal organization that are just going to be completely out the window uh, or out the airlock, I guess, in this case. But we, uh, yeah, there's employee motivation takes on a whole new level at this point. Uh, and, you know, and you can't even really do the punishment thing. You know, like a lot of times in the military, you have, you know, there's a punishment aspect, you know. The Uniform Code of Military Justice, non-judicial punishment, all these things that they can do to enforce compliance. Well, you're stuck with this guy for the next five years. Him holding a grudge is probably bad. Yeah. So, you know, the, this is a whole new. And this is going to be. This is going to be. You know, get your popcorn ready, people. This is going to be something. Well, you're absolutely right because you know when Captain Kirk, Spock, and McCoy and Ensign Smith head to the planet, and one of them's not coming back. You know who it is, but then how do you replace right. Ensign Smith? That's <laughs> right. Nobody but Scotty can wear a red shirt and live. Exactly. <laughs> Joshua, let's go to you. Yeah, so um, I just wanted to put um, all this uh, into perspective for anyone who's uh, really interested in um, space psychology, but doesn't really know um, you know, what's already been discovered or, or what's still missing. And I found this uh, recent data point um, and it says that um, there's been a systematic approach to mapping all possible problems within long duration uh, exploration missions. And it revealed uh, 4,489 possible issues, while only 644 issues have been currently described in literature. So essentially 14% of all possible issues are currently being considered for prevention and management, while 80% is still up in the air. Well, well, let me ask you, Josh, <laughs> because, you know, another one of those great space movies, 2001, A Space Odyssey, you know, and, and right now here we are on planet Earth and chat GP <laughs> just came out. We're talking about how do we work with you know, AI? And by the time we get to space, you know, AI is going to be a little bit more advanced than it is now. And as an IO, am I am I dealing with another colleague at that point when I'm talking to my computer? You know, where, where, how do we deal with that? And was that one of the issues that was raised? Yeah, um, one call to uh, 
feature research was um, how will AI or synthetic team members um, influence uh, team performance. Um, one thing I found was uh, a benefit of having AI on your team is that they, they as in the AI uh, synthetic team member, have task knowledge. And task knowledge is something that's uh, um, associated with trust. You trust this person to, to get their work done so you don't have to worry about them. And in an extreme team setting, AI can be that person that you can trust to, to get those uh, um, processes done, those, those simple processes. Maybe complex depending on um, how advanced the AI is, but ultimately you're able to trust this entity, hopefully with your life, because uh, it's going to be dependent on it. Well, trust is one issue. Do I have to like them? <laughs> how much of a Probably I mean, not. Okay. All right. Well. Start there. Uh, Nick, let's go to you. Yeah, there's, you know, again, the conversation keeps rolling onto the, the farther and farther corners. Um, you know, I just, the interplay between the technology that's going to take to get into space and, you know, create those those new functions are going to benefit us here who are not going or, or left behind, as it were. Um, and so just, you know, you think about the long-term implications and we, we keep referencing sci-fi, you know, Star Trek, uh, there's a series called The Expanse, which looks at some of these longer sort of impacts of, okay, we're out in space. How does the body change? How does society change? I think there is, you know, very much a, okay, I went for a job on Mars and the job got pulled out from under me. Well, now what do I do? Um, scenario in that series. So it's it's very real. And there's the idea that it's not it's not something you can walk away from. It's not something that you can just, you know, get the next bus home. You've committed to this and that's why the selection aspect of it becomes so much more important um and i just it's i guess one question that keeps rattling around in my mind we think about you know organizations solve a problem you know what what is the why of the company okay so what is the why of what we're doing in space is it for exploration and you know we climb the mountain because it's there or is there now a commercial space flight that says we want to expose people to the vacuum of you know, the, the wonders of space for X, Y, and Z. And so how do these organizations then kind of build around their why and what they're doing? And is it, you know, I can't help but think that at some point you're not thinking in terms of profit and loss. You're thinking about exploration and opportunity um, and, and finding the next great thing. And it becomes not about material, but about experience and about a common link in humanity. But it, I agree with you 100%. That's the way it should be. Um, but if I own an organization that's mining resources out of asteroids, it's all about profit. Uh, so, you know, how do I how do I bridge that gap where, you know, mining companies on this planet don't have a great reputation with their employees? So how do we avoid that? Or can we avoid that? Is that something that we're going to be dealing with in 100 years? Probably. I mean, I think there's there's almost two two steps to it. You know, we've got we've got this first wave of people who are just excited to be out in space and pushing the boundaries of, of where we can get and where we can go. And yes, as we find, you know, mineral deposits on asteroids or whatever, greed is going to set in. And, you know, how much time is going to be spent trying to get resources from out there back here to Earth? And the next evolution is, OK, where do we set up these other bases that now are competing for these other resources? It, you know, there's still a finite amount and the logistics get exponentially more complicated um, as far as what we're doing. So it will create jobs, it will create thought, but it's, you know, it's going to shift things farther and farther away from, from the norm. 
And at some point, we're going to lose the tether between mission command and the exploration out there. And maybe Earth isn't the centerpiece for everybody's life anymore. Maybe somebody was born on the moon. And like somebody said, Earth, I've never been there. So it's, you know, you, I always say, you know, the interplay between science and science fiction is fascinating to watch. So it'll be interesting to see what authors and creators come up with in the next 20 years as some of the things in the last fifth we start to, to look a little bit more familiar. Right. Ryan, let's go to you. Yeah. So talking about the the resource mining, I, I'm thinking of like, you know, there comes a point at which uh, to, to, to use the example of uh, civilizations of people who have traveled like across the ocean and started new colonies. Uh, at the very beginning, everybody is kind of all hands on deck. They have to wear multiple hats. But then after a little while, people start specializing and some of the stuff that used to be, you have to know this. You have to have all these different kinds of knowledge. You don't have to have that anymore. So what I'd be curious about is at what point in our technology or culture on other planets do we reach that point where not everybody knows how to do like uh, was brought up in that one um, screen share? Uh, at what point does not everybody need to know software development because we either have people to take care of that or we have AI to take care of that? And and then you mostly just have people going into space who are sort of roughneck miners um and they're able to specialize in that sort of thing uh i'd be curious to know or to try to figure out when that when we might hit that threshold again way in the future but well we think it's way in the future but you know technology keeps advancing so quickly that you know as someone you know was saying earlier it used to be 50 years from now Mm -hmm. and now it's 30 years from now so you know i i think let's not delay yeah yeah (laughs) and wait to figure this out. Uh, So, Jeremy, here we are with about five minutes left. Uh, Interesting conversation, but is there anything that you discovered in your research that you wanted to cover that we haven't touched on yet? Oh, yeah, there's one thing. I I, I do want to start out by saying it absolutely, just this whole, everything blows my mind, but it's, you look at human nature. Nick said, do we climb the mountain just to climb the mountain? I mean, Yes. I mean, of course, it turns into a no, but think about how many people do climb a mountain just because there's a mountain there to climb. And when you look at exploration just of the world in terms of world history, it's always where else can we go? Where else can we colonize? What else can we do? And now that the majority of of Earth is mapped out, it's okay. what's next? So it blows my mind, but it it also makes sense just in terms of the tenacity and the, the need for humans to continue to create and do. Uh, it's amazing to think about. Uh, one thing Josh mentioned earlier that <clears throat> there was something like 4,000 things that could go wrong, but only a couple hundred of them have been studied. Um, in this one article, re- researchers have yet to look for psychological or biological factors that distinguish happy, well-rested participants for these missions from those who struggled mightily and slept little during, in particular, this other um, mission. This is a serious scientific mystery. So it, it's it's why, and this was 2014. I can guarantee that that's been studied now and there are ongoing studies for what are the psychological and biological factors that distinguish happy, well-rested from those who struggle. Uh, but, and I guess it makes sense because everything's just going so fast, but it's kind of weird that the human element is one of the last of these things. So it's interesting when Josh mentions like the the hundreds of things that have been studied that could go wrong out of the 4,000. It makes me think of how many of those are technical versus the the human element and what remains. So there, there's a, uh, it's, it's fascinating to, 
to say the least. I will mention in looking through all this research and, and reading of the experience of teams in these ice environments, whether it's in Utah or Antarctica or on the, the, the side of, yes, Tom, you're right. Um, a six-member team is conducting a simulation of life on Mars space station in a large dome built on the side of Hawaii's Moana Loa volcano. So, Tom, that's you did say that earlier. Uh, so, all in all, I forget what I was saying earlier. So, <laughs> I'm just going to continue on. It's absolutely, it, it's all incredible. You're going to ask me what's coming up in terms of events. So, I'm going to pretend you asked me, and then I'm going to answer that. There was a mention of AI and all this stuff AI related. Next week, we just happen to be having the topic of augmented human, the integration of AI and human intelligence in the workplace. So that is next Thursday. Special event coming up, free event, uh, September 27th. Uh, our very own Linda Ann Rogers and Deborah Colazzo, they're putting on a lunch and need, lunch and lead. Navigating the new normal leadership strategies for uncertain times. And all these are available if you just anyone goes to cbock.com slash events. And then we have our second uh keep the drive alive monthly post three-day event gathering. That's September 27th. Lee's IO Psychology Pop-Up Networking is tonight at 6:30 p.m. And we have a CBOC member momentum session next Tuesday at 10 a.m. That covers a bit. Oh, and if anyone is is interested in um, meeting up, doing some more local, starting off virtual at first, but then in person in either the New England U.S. region, Denver area, or the Pacific Northwest region, send an email to hello at cbock.com. We've got some exciting things that are starting up in regards to that. Uh, let me ask you one more question, Jeremy, before we go, because, you know, Nick mentioned it and you brought it up about, you know, climbing mountains. Um, climbing Mount Everest is dangerous and few people used to do it and few people died. Now it's commercialized and lots of people are doing it and there's lots of people dying. So our IO psychologists, do they need to play that role moving forward of pushing the brake pedal every once in a while on industry and going, I, I realize where we want to go with this and how fast we want to get there, but we are dealing with human beings. So our IO is going to have to go, wait a minute, let's maybe not move so fast. I don't know. I don't know. I imagine, see, it, with things moving so quick, it's like, when do the regulations come into place? Because, you know, can you regulate space Right now, can you have laws here on Earth that regulate what happens in space and work conditions? I think that's all up in the air. I don't know the answer to your question, but it is wildly interesting. We'll add that as number 3049 of what yet we need to discover <laughs> and, and talk about. My goodness. And with that, our time is up. So, Jeremy, it's been great. Once again, fascinating conversation. Time flies by so quickly. Um, best part of my week, but I think it's time to go. So if you want to count us out, we'll see everybody in one week's time. Fascinating. Thank you, everyone, for your contributions. Counting out in five, four, three, two, and... Thanks for listening to this episode of Work Cookie, a Seabock podcast. Don't forget to sign up at seabock.com. That's S-E-B-O-C dot com to engage with our community. 
gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from experts. Would it be a bad idea to make your most challenging workplace problems go away? At seabock.com.